Welcome back to Food Toxicology. Well, today's lecture is uh, perhaps uh, best site subtitled uh, A Tale of Two Metals. And what we're going to do today is explore the historical context and present knowledge about the toxicology of two very important heavy metals, uh, lead and arsenic. The title of today's lecture is The Human Health Risk Assessment of Lead and Arsenic. What we hope to see in terms of this context that we'll try to, to, to put down here today is the historical perspective of the development of knowledge about the toxicology of these two heavy metals. We'll see where absence of knowledge led to public health concerns and impacts, and in fact, in some cases, that knowledge was available, perhaps not well understood, but we as a society made extremely poor decisions in some cases. Uh, perhaps we can forgive the lack of knowledge, but in retrospect, perhaps uh, we are less forgiving of the decisions that uh, individuals made, uh, perhaps, and in terms of the impact of their decisions on exposure to these particular toxicants. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to try to do is explore the use of lead and its impact on public health. Uh, we're not going to do a complete history. Uh, what I'll do is on the course website, uh, put some links about some historical timelines of various aspects of uh, lead and its use in history. We'll try to understand and review the toxicology of lead in humans, uh, primarily reviewing uh, ATSDR documents uh, and some new data that's come out in the past decade or so in terms of the potential impacts of lead. A lot of that work, uh, that new research, uh, has to do with neurotoxicity, so we're going to try to review the neurotoxicity of lead and its impact on child development, uh, a particularly uh, insidious impact uh, in terms of setting one's, uh, an individual up in terms of uh, uh, potential uh, impact. We'll try to uh, survey some of the public health approaches to mitigating lead exposure. Take a look at how we have made decisions in the past couple of decades that have actually had significant impacts in terms of environmental health and public health. We'll then switch over to explore the human exposure to arsenic. And again, we'll try to understand the toxicology of arsenic through review of some ATSDR uh, documents to get a full scope of the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of arsenic and its impact on humans. We'll try to survey the food and water arsenic regulations out there in terms of minimizing impact uh, in the U.S. and to a degree in the world via uh, regulations such as the World Health Organization. Finally, we'll close up uh, today's lecture with a review of the Bangladesh arsenic crisis. Uh, this is a, a particularly gripping situation where uh, good intentions ran foul, and we'll talk about that in terms of the context of the clinical presentation of arsenicosis from water. Well, in terms of lead and lead poisoning, it's got uh, a significant history. In fact, uh, it was, uh, uh, there were observations of lead toxicosis and problems associated with lead, uh, even in the ancient literature. Uh, in the second century, uh, the Greeks were actually uh, referring to this uh, element as uh, uh, making the mind give way. Uh, so working in the silver mines uh, associated with silver production, 
uh, there was lead exposure, and lead exposure uh, was uh, an ill health omen for the miners that work there. Uh, there are some that think lead played a significant role in the fall of the Roman Empire. Lead was used as a common table spice. Uh, you may have heard of leaded wine. Lead salts uh, added to bad wine uh, consume the acetate from vinegar to form lead acetate crystals uh, to make it taste better. And so leaded wine was a way for someone to take wine that had perhaps uh, uh, not been so good or was overaged and make it taste a little bit better. Uh, this exposure, continuous exposure, in terms of uh, uh, not only what was in food products, but also the containers, the mugs, the plates, uh, the utensils associated with, with the Roman Empire, uh, leave many people to think that uh, many of the, the named individuals in Roman history were actually uh, suffering from lead toxicosis. In terms of our own history uh, here in the United States, we have had two primary vectors of human exposure uh, to lead, um, and the first is uh, lead paint. Uh, lead paint is a, uh, a lead carbonate primarily, and uh, it's one of the earliest pigments. It's a white pigment. Uh, had many uses because of its whiteness in terms of being able to be dyed and used as a base. Uh, this has been replaced in recent years by the white paint that exists uh, in your home, hopefully, of titanium dioxide. But it's a big concern in old house renovation because typically the paints that you are going to be scraping off, peeling off in old residences, and this uh, doesn't have to be too old, residences that uh, are pre-1980, for example, uh, typically have uh, percent levels of lead in them, and there can be significant airborne dust lead exposure because of this. So old house renovation is a vector of contamination uh, in terms of household dust, uh, renovation, and also from uh, PICA where uh, children typically, uh, because of a calcium imbalance, uh, will become dirt eaters or in some cases paint chip eaters on dilapidated old buildings. Uh, again, recognize that the paint doesn't have to be white, uh, typically old paints had a base uh, lead carbonate that was often colored. Leaded gasoline is the other major vector of uh, public uh, exposure in the United States. Uh, it was invented in 1921 by General Motors. Um, it was uh, one of a couple of compounds being considered as an anti-knock additive in the early generations of, of uh, uh, internal combustion engines. Uh, it was recognized for its toxicity. There was discussion even in the advent of leaded gasoline about the potential human impact. There have been several uh, review articles written, such as The Secret History of Lead that appeared in The Nation magazine, that reviews some of the politics and the uh, economics of the insertion of leaded gasoline into the U.S. marketplace. But in fact, uh, the banning uh, and the discovery of the concerns about lead and blood lead levels in the U.S. population uh, led us to start uh, replacing leaded gasoline with what we have now at the pump, and you'll see unleaded gasoline. Uh, tetraethyl lead was the anti-knock compound. In the 70s, they started removing that from the market until a complete ban happened in 1986. 
as the shift happened, and the shift had to happen over time because many people had cars that would only run on leaded gasoline. This is a part of my history. I started driving in uh, 1971. But uh, with the transfer from leaded gasoline to unleaded, we saw, as you can see on this graph uh, during this phase out, a decrease uh, of uh, leaded gasoline use and also a decrease in the blood lead levels in the U.S. population, uh, significant in terms of going from an average blood lead level. And this is in micrograms per deciliter, the preferred units for blood lead levels, uh, going from around 16 uh, down to below 10 over this period of time. Uh, between about 1975 and 1980. So significant reductions in terms of cause effect of a change in uh, behavior, a change in product use, and the public health of a population. Current mean blood lead levels uh, in the U.S. population is about two to three micrograms per deciliter. So this has had a significant impact overall in terms of public health. We can examine a chronology of childhood lead poisoning to give you kind of a frame of reference. We're not going to go through all of these bullets, but what the idea here is uh, to, to uh, explore the fact that lead has been with us for quite a long time, but there have been extremely early observations uh, in uh, what I'll call modern uh, toxicology, modern medicine, uh, even starting in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, in terms of uh, some of the concerns about lead use and especially lead use in an intimate human environment, not lead use in an occupational uh, environment in terms of manufacturing. Um, in the 1880s and 1900s, uh, lead and lead paint uh, were actually identified as problem products. Uh, there was uh, instances of uh, lead poisoning, and in fact, uh, some countries in 1904, Belgium, France, and Austria actually banned the use of lead paint in interiors of houses. Uh, in the early 1920s, following the introduction of uh, ethyl gasoline or ethyl antinoc compounds in gasoline, uh, the concerns there, because of some poisonings happening in the manufacturing plant, uh, there were some concerns about the public health and the exposure of this. Uh, in terms of our regulatory infrastructure in the United States in the 1920s, it is not as well developed to protect the public health perhaps as it is today. Following up on that, uh, it wasn't until 1970 that the U.S. Surgeon General actually posted a comment saying that uh, lead and lead in the U.S. population was a potential health problem. Uh, there was a widespread, widespread screening program that started in 1971 to identify uh, the nature and scope of the lead problem in the U.S. Uh, this followed through in terms of some regulatory actions in the post-EPA years of the 1970s in terms of uh, eliminating hazards in the household, eliminating the amount of lead that's uh, allowed into paint. Uh, it currently is allowed only as a trace contaminant uh, uh, in the low hundredths of a percent. A big challenge was uh, when scientists started identifying linkages in the 70s between behavior and neurotoxicity and blood lead levels. This led us to start 
looking at uh, the relationship of blood lead levels as an indicator of exposure, as an indicator of health outcomes, and we started developing Centers for Disease Control action levels in terms of blood lead in children, especially because of its potential neurotoxicity. In 1980, uh, CDC conducted the National Health and Nutrition Survey. Uh, what they found is that the prevalence of blood lead levels greater than 10 micrograms per deciliter, which is the current blood lead level standard, was 88%, a significant exceedance of what we now know is uh, at least a moderately safe level of blood lead. Um, in 1986, the final ban in terms of the ability of the marketplace to sell leaded gasoline uh, uh, came about in the United States. Uh, I will tell you that leaded gasoline is still available in some other countries, primarily to service older vehicles. Uh, in 1991, there was a tremendous threshold change in CDC recommending a universal screening uh, and an action level uh, in terms of child blood lead levels of 10 micrograms per deciliter. In 1994, uh, follow-up surveys in terms of the changeover from leaded gasoline to unleaded gasoline and maintenance of uh, uh, lead paint uh, buildings in terms of restoration. Uh, CDC uh, conducted another phase of the National Health and Nutrition Survey and we found a 21 percent decrease in the children who had blood lead levels uh, over that 10 micrograms per deciliter. So again the environmental health consequences to the mitigation efforts were real. Uh, this followed up uh, in recent uh, years, in the 2000s, we've had uh, a significant amount of research on very low blood lead levels, uh, such that the conclusion right now is that uh, no uh, occurrence of lead in blood is, can be considered uh, without a human health impact. In 2003, um, there was a, a piece of uh, research published in the New England Journal of Medicine that demonstrated a 7.4 point IQ decline with uh, blood lead values up to 10 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, that's a significant loss. Uh, further uh, increases in blood lead levels were almost a five point decrease in IQ levels. Uh, in 2004, there have been proposals following this and other uh, pieces of neurotoxicity research associated with lead. Uh, to lower the uh, blood lead level action levels uh, to two to five uh, micrograms per deciliter. And these have been met with challenges in terms of how to actually do the follow-up uh, clinical uh, investigations and mitigations because the sources in terms of food, airborne dust, uh, lead paint are not as manageable at these extreme low levels. So there's an economic impact but also the practical challenges. But there is a tremendous amount of scientific debate going on right now about whether or not we need lower action levels for childhood blood lead levels. 1998, this is uh, CDC data in terms of a survey. These are state-specific percentages of children uh, aged less than six years. Uh, 
and their blood lead levels, which you can see on this uh, diagram. Uh, here's our axis of 0 and to 40 micrograms per deciliter, and here's a collection of states. Um, the range here, the mean, is identified with a, uh, a white triangle. The bar is the range of the county averages in that particular state. You can see that the averages in some states actually exceed 10, and there are significant exceedances on a county-by-county -county basis, uh, in some cases over 20, 25, and in some cases almost 30 parts per uh, micrograms per deciliter blood lead. This uh, very complex graphic is a classic one uh, that just shows the uh, routes of lead exposure in terms of industrial production, environmental sources, uh, working its way through uh, airborne uh, dust deposition, uh, our water system, and our food system. I don't ask you to necessarily go through this, but just to respect the complexity of all the sources and the pathways in terms of uh, us down here as humans. Uh, what we do find in terms of humans, and especially for children, that one of the primary vectors is uh, in uh, dust, and per perhaps uh, most uh, importantly, household dust, uh, coming from uh, deteriorating paint, uh, lead-based paints on, on uh, walls, and also uh, lead that comes from contaminated areas like mining sites. Uh, children uh, that uh, do a tremendous amount of, uh, on a relative basis, hand-to-mouth activity. Uh, remember that toddlers in the pre-walking stages are uh, in with the dust bunnies on the floor, and uh, they are uh, picking up a lot of dust on their hands, and this has been uh, uh, determined to be a primary vector of uh, lead exposure in the human population, in the U.S. human population. Now, reviewing some of the toxicological aspects of lead, we find that in terms of absorption, that uh, lead, uh, the biological fate uh, will depend on a variety of factors. Uh, it will depend, as you well know, on the characteristics of the exposed person in terms of their nutritional status, their age, their general health. Uh, children and pregnant women, uh, for example, uh, will absorb up to about 70% of ingested lead. It gets absorbed through calcium pathways. There's a differentiation between the different forms of lead, as we learned in other lectures in this course, in terms of efficiency of absorption. Uh, so the chemical form will have an impact on the amount absorbed. In terms of the distribution of lead, we find that it's exchanged primarily in three compartments, uh, among the three compartments of blood soft tissue, which includes the organ tissues, uh, and then the mineralizing tissues, which are bone and teeth. Uh, bones and teeth, the hard tissues, uh, these mineralized tissues, typically contain uh, the majority of the lead body burden. Uh, there have been some studies, uh, for example, we'll talk about where uh, child, uh, uh, children's uh, primary teeth have been used uh, uh, because they lose them early on in, in their childhood. Uh, these teeth have been used as uh, monitoring uh, samples in terms of their childhood lead exposure. Once in the bloodstream, lead is uh, primarily distributed among the, those three components, but the bones uh, and teeth of adults contain more than about 95% uh, of the total lead uh, burden in the body. 
Uh, adults will typically retain about 1% of absorbed lead and children uh, retain uh, more uh, than adults. We find that infants uh, from birth to about two years old um, have about approximately one-third of the uh, total exposure retained in their body mass. We find that animal studies indicate that the liver, lungs, and kidneys have the greatest uh, lead concentrations for soft tissues immediately after an acute exposure. So in terms of uh, monitoring different pathways and comparative toxicology, we typically will use these organs as tissues of uh, sampling and interest. Uh, the BROUTs, in terms of comparative toxicology studies, include inhalation, oral, dermal, and intravenous routes. You will recall that we've uh, done a, a quick review of IEUBK, the Integrated Uptake and Biokinetic uh, Model. Uh, what we've done in that is try to take all of the pharmacokinetics that we know from animal studies uh, and from human studies in terms of clinical exposures and tried to put them together in a model that takes a look at exposures, all of the distributions, and it comes up with a potential blood lead level that allows us to do mitigation efforts. We find that autopsies of exposed workers uh, that uh, have occupational exposure to lead um, found, uh, reveals that uh, in terms of the uh, soft tissues that liver concentrations are greater than kidney, greater than lungs, and greater than brain concentrations. We find in children and adults in the brain, uh, there is a selective accumulation in the hippocampus. Uh, uh, this is a part of the brain that gives us dimensionality and visualization. The half-life in soft tissues uh, for lead is about 40 days. Uh, for uh, bone, it's significantly uh, longer and uh, long as a person's lifetime in terms of residuals. The body accumulates uh, uh, lead into uh, bones and teeth over the lifetime and it uh, releases it very slowly. Uh, it's ultimately deposited. Our body burden for lead is about 94% uh, in bones and teeth. In children, that's a little bit less at about 73%. We find in terms of excretion that most of the lead that is absorbed uh, is excreted uh, by the kidney uh, in urine or through uh, biliary clearance uh, in fecal elimination. In terms of uh, overtoxicity, we find that uh, lead primarily affects the peripheral and central nervous system, uh, renal function, blood cells, and metabolism of vitamin D and calcium, again, because it uh, can uh, interfere with the calcium cycle. It can also cause hypertension, reproductive toxicity, and developmental effects. In times of stress, and we reviewed one case study earlier this uh, summer of uh, an individual that had had uh, a fairly high level of storage uh, in her bones and then had a, uh, a thyroid condition that uh, allowed for uh, a rapid metabolism, a relatively rapid metabolism of uh, the calcium uh, in her bones and some presentation of lead toxicosis that was related to childhood and uh, exposure to lead years earlier. Uh, what we find is that uh, although the blood contains uh, or carries only a small fraction of lead, it serves as the initial receptacle of lead in terms of the sources and pathways. 
and it allows for a distribution of the lead throughout all of the different tissues uh, uh, or, in fact, for excretion. Uh, the half-life of lead in human blood has been estimated to be about 28 days to about 36 days. About 99% of the blood lead level is associated with red blood cells and the erythrocytes, and the remaining 1% uh, resides in blood plasma, uh, probably uh, associated with uh, chelation or proteins, uh, free proteins in the blood. Uh, we use blood lead levels as a means to measure um, lead exposure. Uh, we also have bone x-ray uh, or uh, density uh, analysis that we can do in terms of looking at bone storage of lead in a clinical setting. This graphic um, gives you kind of a logarithmic uh, exposure uh, blood of toxicity uh, endpoints to blood lead concentrations in micrograms per deciliter. At the highest concentrations, 100 uh, micrograms per deciliter, we see coma and seizures in both children and adults. Uh, moving down in terms of concentration, we see uh, uh, neurotoxicity, we see uh, birth weight impacts, we see uh, the impact in terms of child development in decreased I IQ and uh, growth. Uh, we do find, uh, we do know and understand that the lead can cross the placenta at very low concentrations and this does give the potential for transgenerational impacts, in other words, uh, what the exposure of the mother in uh, will yield in terms of developmental toxicity in the fetus. The mechanisms of toxicity uh, in lead uh, have to do with some fundamental biochemical processes. Uh, lead is a mimic of uh, calcium, and so it can impact calcium-dependent uh, related processes. Uh, it can then interact with proteins, uh, especially uh, ones uh, that have sulfhydryl, amine groups, uh, phosphate, or carboxyl groups, just because of the inorganic binding potential of lead salts, lead cations, uh, to these uh, anionic or uh, charged sites. We find that the nervous system is the most sensitive target to lead exposure. We find that fetuses and young children uh, are especially vulnerable, and this is primarily because they are still developing and they're growing at a very rapid uh, rate. Uh, there may be no lower threshold in terms of children, and we once thought that 10 micrograms per deciliter uh, was uh, uh, safe in terms of uh, limiting harmful effects. We now know uh, that uh, harmful effects can be observed at below the current CDC action level. Acute exposure in children may lead to uh, uh, encephalopathy, um, and uh, some of these things uh, in, in terms of the signs and symptoms uh, associated with this are hyperirritability, ataxia, uh, convulsions, stupor, coma, or death. Uh, the blood lead levels associated with uh, this sort of neurotoxicity is on the order of 70 to 80 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, there seems to be, in terms of recent uh, research in the 2000s and the late 1990s, uh, that there is a direct cause-effect relationship in terms of blood lead levels and uh, a uh, in decrease in uh, uh, intelligence quotient, or IQ, 
as well as performance on other neuropsychologic tests. Some of these uh, uh, neurologic effects that we observe in, in these studies may have uh, impacts uh, into adulthood. Uh, one study, for example, correlated lead exposure with lower classroom standing, uh, greater uh, absenteeism, more reading disabilities, uh, deficits in vocabulary, uh, fine motor skills, retention time, uh, hand-eye coordination, uh, more than 10 years after childhood uh, exposure. Uh, these give us a significant pause in terms of how we go about monitoring and managing public health exposure given the history of use of lead paint, the history of leaded gasoline, the environmental exposures, and the exposures potentially through the human food chain uh, in the United States. In this particular uh, work from Canfield in 2003, uh, the conclusion, uh, and I'll quote here, blood lead concentrations even below 10 micrograms per deciliter are inversely associated with children's IQ scores at three and five years of age and associated with declines of IQ are greater at concentrations, at these concentrations than at higher concentrations. Uh, these findings suggest that more U.S. children may be adversely affected by environmental lead than previously estimated. And so this is relatively recent data. Again, how you insert that into uh, mitigation efforts for the public health uh, is the current challenge. This is additional data in there. It shows you um, the graph of uh, average lifetime average blood lead concentration micrograms per deciliter. And this is the IQ range uh, at the bottom of the graph, 70, at the top, uh, 130. Uh, if you consider uh, as uh, the standard in terms of mental retardation as 70 and below, um, you can see that uh, and uh, above 130, 135 as being gifted individuals. If you're talking about average declines of 7.4 uh, across a population, you have the potential to uh, decrease perhaps the number of gifted students uh, in the population. Uh, while at the same time increasing the number of uh, 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 children that uh, would be classified as mentally retarded. As I said, uh, there is uh, an observation and a potential for uh, transgenerational effects of lead. Uh, what we have here uh, is some data uh, from 1987 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We have three uh, blood lead level groups, uh, low, medium, and high. This is at different ages of testing in terms of um, the testing for blood lead, but also for their uh, mental development and for an index score. You can see a significant differentiation between the scoring in the low uh, blood uh, lead group and the high blood lead group, again, giving us pause and concern in terms of the neurotoxic effects of lead on children and childhood development. Some of the other effects we find with lead uh, exposure, we find uh, renal effects and irreversible neuropathy uh, as interstitial, nef interstitial uh, nephritis. We find hematologic effects. Uh, lead will inhibit several enzymes uh, that uh, uh, lead to the synthesis of heme. We see endocrine effects in terms of uh, interference with a hormonal form of vitamin D. 
There are cardiovascular effects in the development of hypertension, reproductive effects in terms of potential for sterility and teratogenesis, especially at high concentrations. Uh, there are cancer effects in that lead is classified as a probable human carcinogen, especially in occupational exposures. There are other concerns in terms of behavior and the neurotoxic impacts uh, of lead. Uh, a study um, in 2002 in environmental health uh, demonstrated uh, essentially a linkage between the lead concentration in primary children's teeth and uh, 20 years later or so, uh, for instance, different behavior challenges like uh, um, uh, criminal activity, uh, lack of uh, development, uh, pro developmental progress in school, uh, educational progress, social progress, uh, all of these uh, essentially intertwining that in fact uh, lead exposure in a uh, childhood environment uh, will set this individual up uh, for uh, a particularly uh, challenged life, uh, if you will. Uh, these sorts of studies uh, are typically extraordinarily controversial, but it does illustrate the point that uh, lead is a uh, toxicant of great concern, uh, something that we should be monitoring, researching, and examining in terms of minimizing the exposure to lead for the U.S. population. The lead action levels in terms of historical perspective, currently CDC is reviewing proposals to lower the blood lead uh, action level to five or two micrograms uh, per deciliter. There are significant questions in how to do this in terms of how we do clinical intervention if we find, in fact, a population, a subpopulation is exceeding these very low levels. Uh, there's no real clear uh, mitigation uh, because there is ubiquitous lead in the environment. There is uh, a significant amount of public health education uh, associated with lead um, and uh, the primary household mitigation is uh, removal of lead paint and management of household dust. Children's blood lead levels uh, currently uh, in the United States about 310,000 children aged one to five years have blood lead levels greater than the 10 micrograms per deciliter action level. And again, the major uh, source of this exposure is uh, lead paint and lead contaminated dust uh, found in deteriorated buildings. There is a relationship, as you can imagine, in terms of uh, the societal impacts, uh, the type of buildings, the type of housing, poverty, all of these have an impact in terms of children's blood lead levels. We have significant amount of regulatory uh, standards in terms of lead exposure in the U.S. population. The public drinking water uh, MCL, maximum contaminant level for lead, is 15 micrograms per liter. FDA does have a food lead level uh, in terms of uh, 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 products uh, intended for use. Uh, by children, and also uh, FDA has banned the use of lead-soldered food cans. Uh, FDA does have a guidance level in terms of uh, concentrations uh, in, in shellfish, uh, 1.5 for crustacea and 1.7 for shellfish. Uh, we have banned uh, or severely limited uh, the amount of lead uh, allowed in paint, uh, and it is totally banned as an additive in gasoline. CDC action level is currently 10 micrograms per deciliter. 
in air in terms of OSHA occupational exposure, 0.5 milligrams per cubic meter. There is no uh, EPA reference dose, uh, and this probably uh, is uh, uh, respectful of the fact that lead is ubiquitous in the environment and the food chain. It's uh, in a couple of parts per million in normal background soils. It's in trace contaminant in the food chain just because of its occurrence in nature. Uh, there is no um, ASTDR uh, minimal risk level. Uh, California does have a reduced drinking water level of two micrograms per liter. In terms of the results from some of the mitigation uh, actions of regulatory agencies in the United States, um, since it was banned in 1998, uh, uh, significant changes have occurred, as you've seen, in terms of reduction of blood lead levels. U.S. food canners quit using lead in uh, solder in 1991. The 25-year phase-out of uh, lead and gasoline reached its goal in 1995. And in FDA, when they do their total diet studies uh, between 1994-96, showed that uh, in the previous decade, daily intakes of lead uh, had dropped 96% uh, in two to five-year-olds and nearly 93% in adults. So significant changes in terms of exposure from regulatory action. So the risk assessment, the development of the new knowledge, and uh, the risk uh, communication, the legislative mandates, and the risk management associated with the risk triad actually had the positive effect we would hope for. We find that lead is managed by FDA in terms of ceramic ware and utensils. There are specific uh, guidance levels in terms of the types of containers. Uh, containers that are found on the marketplace with values exceeding these leachable lead levels uh, are subject to enforcement and recall. Uh, these levels that are used in, in uh, containers uh, are actually uh, determined by the type and temperature the food is used. Uh, if uh, a, a container is intended for acidic beverages or uh, repeated use or long-term storage, the levels, the mandated levels, are significantly lower in the leachate tests. Well, next, what we're going to do uh, here in this particular lecture about the human health risk assessment uh, of lead is to, and arsenic is to move on uh, to arsenic. Uh, arsenic is a naturally occurring element, just like lead. Uh, it's not as significant in terms of its use uh, in industry or uh, in the human food chain. Uh, it comes to us uh, from uh, iron ores and uh, magmatic sulfides. Uh, we find it in sediments and soils as a result of uh, dissolution or weathering of the parent rock. Uh, we find it, for example, in uh, uh, river estuaries uh, in terms of washout from mountains. Um, in terms of the natural occurrence of arsenic in surface water and groundwater, it can be as the uh, arsenic-5 or ox arsenic-3 oxidation state. Uh, what we find in terms of anthropogenic sources in soil and water, uh, we have used uh, arsenic as uh, pesticide, as uh, lead arsenate, for example, and as wood preservatives, uh, copper arsenate uh, is one of them. Uh, these both have been banned uh, for a considerable amount of time. Uh, as well, in terms of uh, anthropogenic activities, uh, such as mining operations, excavations, any sort of soil disturbance where there is naturally occurring minerals that do contain arsenic, uh, 
this can accelerate the dissolution of uh, uh, and weathering of arsenic from the parent rocks into a mobilized form uh, that uh, is soluble in surface water. In terms of human dietary exposure, uh, we do find that there is uh, some arsenic in the human food system from high arsenic agricultural areas. There are some foods that are naturally high in arsenic. Uh, in most seafood, for example, uh, there's significant levels. Uh, if you have a shellfish meal, uh, your urine the next day will have significant amounts of arsenic. However, this particular arsenic form is, a, is called arsenobetaine. Uh, it's an organo-arsenical. Uh, it actually is um, not metabolized by the body to release its arsenic, and so it's got uh, low toxicity on a relative basis, even though the exposure levels are significant. Uh, there is a direct urinary excretion of arsenobetaine. We also have exposure via drinking water, although, uh, as we'll discuss, uh, public drinking water systems are managed for their arsenic levels. In terms of regulating uh, arsenic in food in the U.S., FDA has no tolerance levels for arsenic in food except for byproducts of animals that are treated with veterinary drugs. Uh, we talked about roxarsone, uh, an arsenic-based animal drug uh, that is used as an antibiotic in chickens and poultry and in swine. Uh, FDA has established tolerance levels because of these antibiotics being used in the human food chain. Uh, these permissible range levels range from a half of a milligram per kilogram in eggs and uh, uncooked edible tissues to two milligrams per kilogram in certain uh, swine tissues. There is an FDA guidance uh, for levels of arsenic uh, in crustacea and shellfish, uh, 76 uh, uh, milligrams per kilogram and 86 milligrams per kilogram. Arsenic speciation is uh, an important concept in terms of uh, the risk assessment of arsenic. Uh, the inorganic species that we find in drinking water are more prevalent and more toxic. Uh, we find that uh, inorganic uh, arsenic forms oxyanions uh, in solution. Uh, in the U.S. water, uh, especially groundwaters, uh, we find that uh, there's a breakup of about uh, one-third arsenic-3 and about two-thirds arsenic-5. Uh, as you'll notice uh, in terms of the molecular diagrams here, uh, arsenic-3 is neutral. Uh, when we have neutral substrates, uh, they typically are a little bit uh, more difficult to remove, and so this has been a real challenge in terms of water treatment when you have uh, arsenic-3. In terms of arsenic uh, speciation, one of the ways we can look at that is with geochemical thermodynamics. Uh, those of you that uh, have had an environmental chemistry course perhaps have seen a Courbet diagram. This is just a diagram of the stability fields of the different forms of arsenic, the different species of arsenic available in the environment as a function of pH and also redox potential, how much oxidation. So for instance, uh, surface waters will be highly oxidized, whereas groundwaters will be uh, a little bit more reduced or have negative redox potentials. Typically, in terms of uh, uh, the environmental exposures, it's about in the center of this particular diagram. Uh, Circumneutral pHs is what we typically observe uh, in nature, uh, and uh, EHs uh, that range from about minus 100 to 
plus 200 uh, in terms of uh, redox potential. And so you can see these are the primary species that would be observed uh, in the human environment. In terms of uh, absorption of arsenic, uh, uh, soluble ingested arsenic is well absorbed, about 60 to 90 percent uh, by the gastrointestinal tract. Most tissues, uh, except for skin, hair, and nails, uh, uh, rapidly clear arsenic. And so sometimes uh, hair samples will be used to look for uh, uh, arsenic residues. Um, after absorption, arsenic initially accumulates in the liver, the spleen, the kidney, and the lungs, and GI tract. Uh, there is some transfer to the bones and the teeth. Uh, arsenic oxyanions uh, actually uh, behave in a very similar fashion to phosphorus oxyanions or phosphate. And so if you follow the phosphorus cycle in terms of the human body, typically where you'll find phosphates, you'll find uh, arsenic oxyanions. In terms of arsenic, it undergoes a biotransformation via methylation to less toxic metabolites. These are methyl arsenic acid and dimethyl arsenic acid. Uh, these are uh, biotransformed in the livers. The primary route of these uh, biotransformed, biomethylated uh, arsenic uh, compounds are via the kidney into the urine. Uh, normally, we have less than 50 micrograms per liter in our urine. Uh, after eating uh, a seafood meal, uh, the uh, total arsenic level, uh, again, arsenobetaine can exceed 1,000 micrograms per liter. In terms of its mechanistic toxicity, arsenic impairs uh, tissue respiration, uh, as you would imagine, because of its potential interaction with uh, phosphate uh, and uh, ATP. It can bind sulfhydryl groups and it can disrupt sulfhydryl containing enzymes in terms of uh, its interaction. It inhibits the pyruvate and succinate oxidation pathways. It inhibits a TCA cycle and it impairs gluconeogenesis. It reduces oxidative phosphorylation and it can substitute uh, for phosphorus in many biochemical reactions. This all leads to a potential uh, array of, uh, of uh, outcomes in terms of uh, chronic and acute exposure. In chronic exposure, what we find uh, is primarily uh, targets of cardiovascular effects. Uh, Long-term ingestion of arsenic in drinking water uh, can result in pronounced peripheral vascular changes. Uh, there can be vascular insufficiency, lo loss of blood flow. Uh, Blackfoot disease, gangrene of the extremities associated uh, uh, skin cancers can develop as well. We can have Raynaud's phenomenon, which is a vasospasm of the blood vessels themselves. Uh, acrocyanosis, which is decreased uh, O2, a bluing of the hands or, or feet, uh, a cold uh, feeling. And there can be a fibrous thickening of uh, the small and medium arteries and uh, myocardial hypertension hypertrophy. Uh, these have been demonstrated uh, in human clinical disease associated with uh, exposure primarily through drinking water in some populations. There are neurologic effects in terms of the development of peripheral neuropathy, uh, various sensory motor nerve uh, affections, numbness uh, in the limbs. The dermal effects of uh, arsenicosis are quite pronounced. There can be pigment changes and hyperkeratosis, the development of thickening of the skin. 
these benign keratoses may progress to malignancy uh, depending upon the individual and the exposure. Uh, in terms of the skin lesions, we find this hyperpigmentation, hyperkeratosis, and skin cancer as being uh, the manifestation of primary arsenicosis. There is also uh, a bone marrow uh, depression that will lead to uh, anemia and uh, leukopenia in terms of uh, decreased white blood cells and decreased red blood cells. In terms of reproductive effects of arsenic, we find that there's an increased frequency of spontaneous abortions and congenital malformations linked to arsenic exposure. Uh, it is considered to be a reproductive toxicant and a teratogen and it does cross the placental barrier. In terms of carcinogenic effects, uh, this is one of the prime risk motivators in terms of arsenic exposure, especially lifetime chronic exposure. Uh, what we find is that it is strongly associated with an increased risk of skin cancer and may cause cancers of the lung, liver, bladder cancer, uh, kidney cancer, and colon cancer. It does affect uh, enzymes involved in DNA replication and repair, and this is considered to be one of the uh, me mechanistic aspects of arsenic carcinogenesis. In terms of acute exposure, about 500 to 3, I'm sorry, 50 to 300 milligrams of inorganic arsenic is uh, fatal to humans. There'll be gastrointestinal injuries and kidney damage. This is not a comfortable poison. This is a very violent poison at these high levels. Uh, this is when arsenic, as for instance rat poison, uh, is given uh, as a poison uh, to an individual, uh, whether for cause or by accident. Um, there will be circulatory collapse and respiratory failures. In terms of other exposures, we find that we have uh, potential for industrial exposure in mining and in agriculture. There are opportunistic exposures just in terms of our diet uh, and uh, the cycling of arsenic uh, in the human food chain. Uh, treated wood, wood treated by uh, copper arsenate type compounds uh, has been uh, phased out and banned. Uh, we've also had a history of the use of arsenic in various pigments uh, like copper, uh, copper arsenate, uh, copper um, uh, arsenate as a green pigment called Paris green. It has a, a colorful history, if you will, in terms of its uh, presentation uh, of arsenicosis uh, by individuals uh, that uh, used it for wallpaper historically uh, or for uh, in artists that used it uh, in paints uh, uh, doing their particular work. There have been a uh, uh, history of use of arsenicals in uh, human and animal drugs. Uh, it is currently used uh, in, again, uh, poultry and swine production. Uh, arsenic trioxide, for example, is used in the management of human leukemia. In terms of the effects of uh, chronic uh, uh, arsenic exposure, uh, arsenic builds up in the tissues, uh, skin, and the hair. Uh, it develops melanosis, keratosis, and unusual pigmentation on the skin. It will progress to lesions and vascular system damage. Uh, it'll start uh, developing cancers in the skin, lung, bladder, lymph glands, kidney, uh, prostate, uh, and there is some evidence as well for uh, central nervous system damage associated with arsenicosis. It is common drinking water contaminant in the U.S., uh, Taiwan, Chile, Mexico, Argentina, Bangladesh, and India, and others. 
there have been episodic instances of uh, toxicosis associated with drinking water. Uh, the World Health Organization has a drinking water standard of 10 micrograms per, per liter. Um, many countries, and especially uh, the less developed countries, uh, have uh, maintained a standard of 50 micrograms uh, per liter. Uh, the U.S. had a standard of 50 micrograms per liter uh, prior to 2000, uh, the year 2000, 2001. Uh, it changed it uh, via some legislation to the 10 microgram per liter uh, with a mandated compliance uh, as of 2006, although there are uh, circumstances for waivers and extensions that will allow this uh, compliance date to be significantly extended. In terms of uh, our past uh, regulation, arsenic is a class A known human carcinogen. Uh, there's a one to two in a thousand risk of cancer that some epidemiologists think it might be a one in 100 cancer risk at the current drinking water MCL uh, or the previous drinking water MCL of 50 micrograms uh, per liter. Uh, arsenic was listed uh, before 1987 as a water contaminant, but there was no bat or best available technology to remove it from water. And so there was a challenge in terms of complying with the rule and regulation. Uh, arsenic, uh, the MCL historically was in the U.S. Uh, 50 micrograms per liter. The new MCL as of January 22nd, and you recall that's uh, the day before the presidential inauguration. This is one of the last pieces of legislation signed uh, by the Clinton administration. Um, it specified the same level as the World Health Organization. Uh, what we find is that although arsenic uh, is a problem, the food exposure of arsenic uh, becomes a more important source below 10 micrograms in water. Uh, in this legislation, uh, the best available technologies were named in terms of recommended ways to treat drinking water. Uh, because this was done in the last stages of, of an administration, the next administration, the Bush administration, canceled this or suspended it in March 2001 pending review. Uh, with a little bit of outrage and some concern because <clears throat> the rest of the world had pretty much moved forward with 10 micrograms per deciliter. The Bush administration actually did promulgate the final rule in October 2001. In terms of arsenic in the United States, uh, it presents significantly in the western part of the United States, uh, primarily as a groundwater contaminant. Uh, this graphic, uh, the darker areas, the darker browns, are areas with very high or predominantly high arsenic concentrations. So you can see that this is a west and southwest uh, United States concern in terms of uh, uh, drinking water availability. Um, there is less water availability in uh, the western United States, and so this is a particularly significant economic and development as well as public health concern. The current uh, drinking water standard is uh, 10 micrograms per liter. The, R, uh, the reference dose uh, for EPA is 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per day. OSHA does have a workplace air standard of 10 micrograms per cubic meter. And ATSDR, the Agency for Toxic Substances Disease Registry, has a minimal risk level of 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per day. 
Well, now in terms of uh, finishing up today's lecture, we're going to review uh, a case study. This case study uh, is uh, a public health emergency of arsenic in the Bangladesh uh, environment. This is a significant challenge. It's uh, sometimes uh, in some people's uh, uh, representations considered to be uh, a global, I mean, a, a, a current uh, public health crisis. Uh, the scope, and I'll quote this, this is a World Bank statement uh, with more than an estimated 20 million of its 126 million people assumed to be drinking contaminated water and another 70 million potentially at risk. Bangladesh is facing what has been described as perhaps the largest mass poisoning in history. A researcher, a physicist actually at Harvard University that has made uh, this his passion uh, in terms of the risk assessment of uh, arsenic in Bangladesh has the quote that Bangladesh makes the Chernobyl disaster look like a Sunday school picnic. In terms of the history of the Bangladesh problem, uh, again a quote, this is from a UNESCO uh, worker, the story beggars belief in the 1970s international agencies uh, headed by the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, began pumping millions of dollars in money into the Bangladesh uh, economy for the development of tube wells to provide clean drinking water. And so this was a good thing. Uh, according to the World Health Organization, the direct result has been the biggest outbreak of mass poisoning in history. Up to half of the country's tube wells, now estimated to number 10 million, are poisoned. Uh, tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands will die. And so the scope of this particular intoxication is significant. It's especially significant to think about the long-term uh, um, uh, prospects in terms of potential cancer development uh, over decades for the exposed population. Well, how did this happen? In the early 1970s, most of Bangladesh's population got their uh, drinking water from surface ponds. Uh, the surface ponds had problems in terms of vectors for waterborne disease. Uh, as it turned out, uh, uh, using tube wells actually had a very uh, positive effect in terms of waterborne disease. Uh, and uh, it brought the uh, infant mortality rate uh, down by half. And so this was a significant public health impact. And in fact, the United Nations and the British Geological Survey that spearheaded uh, the development of, of subsurface wells in Bangladesh uh, did it uh, because of the public health concerns about contaminated surface water. As it turns out, uh, they did an inadequate job of reviewing the water chemistry associated uh, with this particular delta of the waters that flow uh, from the Tibetan mountains uh, down into the Bay of Bengal. Uh, and in fact, uh, this uh, delta deposition zone was in fact high in releasable arsenic uh, compounds in the subsurface. They found that the drinking water wells were contaminated with 50 to 400 micrograms per liter of arsenic. Uh, arsenic was getting into the rice, Bangladesh's staple crop, through various uh, uh, irrigation waters pumped from these contaminated soils. Uh, about a decade uh, and a half ago, they started seeing uh, uh, a tremendous amount of uh, human health impact. Uh, this photo shows a woman with the, the traditional or the classic uh, arsenicosis lesions, the blackfoot lesions, the keratoses on her hands and feet. Uh, 
this particular individual has a lesion that has developed uh, into cancer. On this slide, uh, you see those lesions again, the black spots, uh, the keratoses, uh, the uh, lesions that develop on the hands and the feet. One of the classic early symptoms uh, is a development of a hyperpigmentation on the chest and arms. Uh, it's been described as uh, like spots of rain on a dusty road in terms of uh, how this hyperpigmentation occurs. Uh, again, a classic uh, early symptom of arsenicosis. It's a little bit hard to see in this uh, image, but uh, if you stare at it long enough, you can see that in fact uh, this hyperpigmentation does occur on this uh, young boy's chest and arms. Uh, this is an image, a very graphic one, of uh, gangrene caused by uh, arsenicosis uh, in the development of arsenic lesions. Uh, in terms of the uh, cultural and social factors of Bangladesh, which is a developing country, uh, this has a significant influence on how this public health crisis is managed. Uh, the social consequences are far-reaching and somewhat tragic. Uh, there's a high rate of illiteracy, lack of information. Uh, there has been a significant history of um, uh, leprosy uh, in this population, and these individuals are essentially assumed to be diseased and contagious. Uh, women uh, exposed and, and uh, having signs of arsenicosis uh, are uh, considered to be unmarriable. Uh, sometimes abandoned by their husbands. Uh, children are kept away from schools and, and closeted to hide uh, the particular lesions and therefore hide the problem of arsenicosis. There has had to have been a tremendous amount of outreach effort by the public health authorities. Again, this is a developing country without a significant amount of public health resources. There has been a tremendous infusion of uh, uh, international support in terms of developing a public health response, developing new technologies, managing this particular public health crisis. One of these is the identification of contaminated wells and segregation of those waters from uncontaminated waters. Uh, there have been uh, individuals that go into the different villages and identify wells that are contaminated uh, by uh, little test kits that have been distributed. Obviously, this is of great concern because the well is a source of economic pride to a local population. To be told that you are drinking poisoned water or your village has poisoned water has social and economic impacts, and so there is a challenge in terms of uh, public health management in this domain. The water quality management in terms of making sure that people don't use uh, contaminated drinking water has been reduced uh, to a very simple approach of uh, coloring the wells uh, green if the water is safe and red if it is tested as unsafe. There have also been some public efforts at household water treatment, uh, appropriate technology if you will. Uh, these technologies have uh, been developed uh, by various uh, international scientists to be uh, implemented on a very local basis in this population. They've typically included absorptive techniques uh, using, uh, for example, iron-coated uh, clays or iron metal, uh, which does sorb uh, some of the arsenic and reduce it uh, to lower levels, typically at or below 50 micrograms per liter. 
This last uh, image I put on here, this is uh, from a World Bank publication. This is a portrait uh, of uh, Pinjira Begum and her daughter. Uh, what this does, uh, hopefully for the students in the class, is put a face on the arsenic uh, crisis in Bangladesh. In the first world, we often are advised or read about or study these crises and approach them uh, with perhaps the uh, feigned grief of the sleeping village underneath the volcano. Uh, what we try to do here in uh, food toxicology is have great empathy and compassion uh, for those that are impacted by food toxicoses. Well, that gives you uh, a good, uh, strong introduction to our tale of two elements, lead and arsenic. Uh, on the course uh, website, what I'll try to do is, is give you enough resources to get some background information so that you can develop at least uh, a limited degree of uh, expertise and knowledge uh, about these two very important elements uh, in terms of their relationship to human toxicology and some of the public health efforts that we have had in terms of mitigating our exposure. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much.